Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz. Mahalo for joining us. It is Monday, November 20th. Hawaii Talks on the Conversation. The president of the Philippines, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., Bongbong Marcos, is headed home after a two-day stopover in Honolulu this weekend. It was his first trip to the islands in three decades. We continue to look at aid for immigrants in the aftermath of the Maui wildfires. We hear from one family from the Philippines who shares their recovery experience. A cultural site is in danger of being taken off the list of World Heritage Sites. A local arborist travels to Micronesia to help Panapan save Nan Madal, an ancient stone fortress. An alohaware company, Iolani, wakens from hibernation. The local family business shares how it has retooled its vision coming out of the pandemic. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Philippines President Ferdinand Marcos Jr., Bongbong Marcos, stopped off in Honolulu this weekend to meet with military top brass on his way back to Manila following APEC meetings in San Francisco. Economic security and cybersecurity are two things Marcos says are priorities for his region, and he underscored the need to stave off China's posturing in the Western Pacific. He spoke at the Daniel K. Inouye Asia-Pacific Center for Security Studies yesterday. Tensions in the West Philippine Sea are growing with persistent and lawful threats and challenges against Philippine sovereign rights and jurisdiction over our exclusive economic zone and the continental shelf. Actions that violate obligations under international law, particularly the 1982 UN Convention on the Law of the Sea or UNCLOS and the 2002 Declaration on the Conduct of Parties in the South China Sea. Our regular routine and resupply missions at Ayung in Shoal are subjected to coercive tactics and dangerous maneuvers of Coast Guard and maritime militia vessels in the West Philippine Sea, putting the lives of our people at risk and challenging the rule of law in that, that has defined our baselines, our economic zone, and uh, the maritime territory of the Philippines. There is rampant, illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing and militarization of reclaimed features in the South China Sea. There have been recent missions to Escoda and Romulo Reef, revealed a, which revealed a direct correlation between the presence of maritime militia vessels and reef damage in those features. If only for that, the impact of bio, on biodiversity and the environment um, um, I'm afraid are assessed as possibly already irreversible. This imperils livelihoods, this imperils the future generations of Filipinos. So I have said it before, and I will say it again. The Philippines will not give a single square inch of our territory to any foreign power. Marcos arrived in Honolulu Saturday evening for the first time since he lived here while his family was in exile in the 1980s. He met with community leaders at the Hawaii Convention Center. Outside, a few dozen protesters rallied against his visit to the islands. Never again to martial law! Never again to martial law! No justice! No peace! 
Stop the killings in the Philippines! Stop the killings in the Philippines! Stop the killings in the R.C. Imasa is with the group Hawaii Filipinos for Truth, Justice, and Democracy. That organization, along with the Committee for Human Rights in the Philippines, organized the protest. We would like to send a message to the Filipino community and to the, all Filipinos in the diaspora outside the Philippines that Hawaii is no place for murderers and plunderers like the Marcuses. And um, they are not welcome here. And it's a a shameful thing to do to come back to Hawaii after all the the crimes that they've done to the Filipino people. There have been lawsuits, many lawsuits against the Marcos regime and there have been judgments that have yet to be paid. It is very unfortunate that those uh, judgments were not enforced at all. The Filipino people were not able to take back the ill-gotten wealth of the Marcoses until now. Um, it's still all over the world and the Marcuses are still using that money to keep themselves in power. But I think the biggest takeaway on that is that we Filipino people should continue to fight uh, for justice and really take back that money, take back that wealth from them and make the Filipino people uh, use uh, that money. We've suffered enough. And among those at the demonstration was Honolulu attorney Eric Seitz. Seitz had an office in Manila in the 1970s. He recalled under uh, how under Marcos Sr.'s regime, his law firm was targeted and his staff arrested when martial law was declared. The day after martial law was declared, Marcos raided our office and arrested everybody who was there. They were looking for me as the ringleader, but I was gone. They uh, imprisoned our staff, three people, and they threatened to, um, they threatened actually to hold him for a military trial for capital crimes, for conspiring to overthrow the Philippine government. What happened essentially was we, they got out and our office was closed as a consequence. And then if you fast forward, 15 years later, Marcos showed up in Hawaii and he showed up uh, in my neighborhood in New Valley. I came home one evening and there was all this activity on the highway two blocks from my house. I stopped and asked somebody what was going on and he said, oh, the Marcoses are moving in. So I ran home, got my sign and got my friend and we went out and we stood in front of the house on the highway and got arrested promptly by the Secret Service. And uh, we were told we couldn't do that, but the Secret Service in turn was told by the U.S. Attorney that we had every right to be there and to let us go. Uh, and the next day we came back and there were 20 of us and at that point I was arrested, arrested by HPD and that's all on TV. Everybody took a video of that and it's in documentaries. And then uh, the next day we came back with 50 and later that week they moved up to Makiki in a very secluded place. I've been, I would consider myself a very strong opponent of Marcos. Uh, when I was in the Philippines people were killed, whom I knew very well because of their political activism. And so I thought it was, uh, it was an atrocious situation. And to think that, you know, decades later then, his son, Bong Bong, you know, would uh, return to Monacanyang Palace, uh, and his sister is a senator, and... Yeah. Well, you know, uh, 
When I was there, Bong Bong was kind of a laughing stock. He was a playboy, he was drinking, he was going to parties. He had no qualifications to do anything other than live off his parents' money, um, he and his sisters, and it uh, was pretty disgraceful. So uh, no one would have imagined that this person, who had no qualifications, would ever have become uh, a political success. And it's troubling to me that uh, in the Philippines that that was allowed to happen. Because he is styling himself uh, like his father. He is uh, developing close ties with the United States, including military ties. And he's going down the same road that his father went down. And I, I think that's unfortunate for all the people in the Philippines and all the social problems and poverty uh, that exists there. So that's why I'm here. And Marcos Jr. spoke to Filipino community leaders and loyalists uh, Saturday evening. He shared how much it means to be able to return to Hawaii after being exiled here for six years after his father was removed from power. He spoke of gratitude for the loyal supporters who took care of his family some 30 years ago. We landed here in Honolulu with nothing, with nothing. My family, my family was flown from Malacanang Palace to Hickam Air Force Base. When I tell this story, people do not believe it. They do not quite believe it. But we landed here with nothing. Even ultimo yung damit namin, silang nagbigay. Silang nagpapakain sa amin. Pati yung mga appliance doon sa Makiki, silang nagdadala. At pagka kami nalulungkot, sila ang nagpa, nagpapasaya sa amin kung hindi sa inyo. Palagay ko, wala na yung pamilyang Marcos, kaya hindi ko mga kalimutan. On behalf of my entire family, wala na yung aking ama. But when my mother found out that I was coming to Honolulu, you say, he said, you make sure that you go back to all of those people who went out of their way to keep us comfortable, to keep us alive, literally alive. And that, uh, that is something that I will carry in my heart, that the Marcos family will carry in my heart. We tell our children about this and how wonderful you all were to us in the time that we were here. We could not have survived the, a, a very diff, that very difficult period if not for you. That was Philippines President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. thanking his supporters while outside a small group demonstrated against the Marcos family being back in power. Uh, before he left this weekend, President Marcos donated $100,000 to help with wildfire recovery efforts in Maui. Support for HPR comes from Haleakala Ranch with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at haleakalaranch.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm David Bedrick. I'm the author of Revisioning Activism. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about depth, dialogue, and diversity, and bringing that to individual and social change. Beginning Sunday morning at 11... Support for HPR comes from Ala Moana Hotel by Mantra, offering guests rooms and suites with ocean, mountain, and city views, and a lobby reflecting a blend of Hawaii's tropical colors. Reservations at alamoanahotel.com.
WHPR reporter Cassie Ordonio joins us in studio today to talk about the immigrant experience following the Maui wildfires. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yes, and so it was interesting, you know, to see how this weekend uh, President Marcos donated money to the cause because Filipinos were, you know, the largest um, ethnic group that was affected. That's right, Catherine. And we know that Lahaina's uh, population is 40% Filipino and 11% is Latino. And it's been more than three months since the Lahaina wildfires on August 8th. Now we're coming up on four months now and we're approaching the holiday season. And that fire has destroyed much of Lahaina and displaced 11,000 people, including migrants and immigrants, and damaging more than 3,600 properties. And 60% of those properties were housing. And that left many of Lahaina's immigrant population facing the dilemma of waiting to rebuild their homes or leaving their homes forever. I spoke to some immigrant families. Some are debating on staying and just waiting it out. And I also spoke with uh, Krishna Bayuden, um, who's Filipino, who lost her home in the fires. And her family um, is experiencing possibly moving out of uh, Hawaii for good, maybe California or Las Vegas. And her family moved to Lahaina from the Philippines over 30 years ago. And this is a reaction that she uh, heard when her parents were talking about moving away. My parents were talking to my younger sister and asking her, oh, like, what about Las Vegas or what about California? Like, would you want to live there? And that all makes me sick to my stomach because this is the home that I've always imagined myself living in and nowhere else. These are where our roots are placed. And it, it makes me so, so sad that this is even a conversation to be had. And it also makes me sad there aren't any solutions about what our livelihoods are going to look like. So, and that's why all our families are faced with this dilemma of what are we going to do since our government isn't doing anything about it or showing us that there's any progress being made towards the solution. But I feel extremely sad in my heart that that's what is being talked about, about moving away and then possibly coming back. But who knows, like, if everyone's going to come back because three to five years from now, like, that's a lot of time for things to change and maybe feelings about coming back will be different. Yeah, there's so many different stories and situations. I know we heard of one family that uh, had a number of homes, uh, and, you know, they've got so many families, relatives, extended families that are affected. And that's, it's currently affecting them today. And Krizna, like like other immigrant families as well, they've been moving from home to home or hotel to hotel contract out contracted out to the Red Cross and Krizna told me that her and her family they've moved approximately five times in red uh, in hotels contracted out by the Red Cross and so far they're sta- she described it as a two-bedroom condo hotel kind of structure but there's six family members including her and she said that it's kind of a tight space for them because they're so used to kind of having like an open space in their old home. And her story was very interesting because her parents, when they moved from the Philippines, they were working in the hotel industry until her mom got a job as a nurse and then her dad was a carpenter. And so they saved enough money to buy their home just last year, actually. And then the wildfires happened. And that home was kind of this symbolism of all of their hard work to immigrate here to the U.S. And those who are staying in, 
hotels contracted by the Red Cross. The Red Cross is currently housing COFA migrants, undocumented families, FEMA-eligible families until February 10, 2024. But that's according to a draft report from the shelter working group created by the House. So February 10, that's really not that much time and anything can happen because we know that it's going to take, well, I mean, state officials say it's going to take three to five years to rebuild. So it's really a waiting game for these families. And Roughly one-third of Lahaina's population is foreign-born. Many immigrants come from the Philippines, the Pacific Islands, and even Latin America. I've spoken to some service providers, and they said they're doing their best to get information out to Lahaina residents, especially COFA migrants. And COFA is um, Micronesian migrants from uh, of Compacts of Free Association Nations. So that's Palau, the Marshall Islands, and the Federated States of Micronesia. So I've talked to um, uh, one of my sources, Austin, and he's been trying to tackle misinformation about COFA migrants and FEMA eligibility. The automatic assumption with especially COFA citizens is that they're not eligible for a lot of you know federal programs yeah, but when it comes to things like FEMA, there are ways that they can be qualified. For example, if they have a child who's a U.S. citizen, that automatically qualifies them for to receive benefits. So I think it's I think that's kind of like the main issue is citizenship status and whether or not that affects their eligibility for a lot of programs. Because I think after that, everything else is not too bad. It's just more or less just gathering all the documents needed and making sure they understand everything, if not interpreters are there for them. Yeah, and, you know, that eligibility thing is a concern. I mean, when we had the pandemic, right, there was there was federal money that was available for funerals, but then th- those Micronesians uh, who were hard hit, uh, particularly the Marshallese, you know, they had problems with that and they weren't eligible. And what's also interesting is that um, I'm more connected with the Micronesian communities on Oahu and the Big Island, not so much of Lahaina's Micronesian population, but I did find out from Austin that most of the population is actually Pohnpeian, and that's because they work in the, um, the, the, farming, the farming industry, which I thought was really interesting. Um, but Austin did make something clear is that you want to get those interpreters out there to help provide these services so you make sure these migrant and um, immigrant populations can understand what they're applying for and what they're eligible for. But, you know, service providers, they're trying to get these immigrants and migrants the help that they need. However, there are some immigrants who still don't feel comfortable talking to government agencies and are afraid to come forward. So while Lahaina's population makes up 40% Filipino, the Latino population makes up about 11%, but that number could be greater. And um, some non-citizens, including COFA migrants and undocumented folks, are at a a significant risk of displacement from the fire due to lack of federal support. And right now, the draft uh, recommendation created by the House, the Working Shelter Group, uh, that group, they're trying to find some supportive programs that can further assist them, including um, families that have um, uh, young children. Yeah, well, I I know that... um you know, the um, uh, concern about uh, many of these different migrant groups is the language barrier, you know, and they have been really trying to make a concerted effort to provide those interpreters. I think I just saw something this weekend about the hotlines, just to, you know, make sure that if folks are driving around that they know that these resources exist, if they haven't already, you know, made face-to-face contact at one of these um, centers. 
And I just spoke with another family, um, Nicolas Elizalde. He is um, originally from Mexico. I had to speak with him through an interpreter to kind of help, um, you know, grasp that language barrier. But um, it's, it's, it's a stark contrast from uh, Krizna's experience because her family is considering actually moving out of Hawaii for good, um, given the high cost of living. But for his family, he actually just went back to work. He works in the hotel industry, and this uh, he told me that this is his first week of a full full week of work, which is really wow. interesting. Um, and for him, he said that he's not going anywhere. He said um, in Spanish that we're immigrants, we fall down, we get back up, and we're, we want to stay here in Lahaina because Lahaina is not going to look the same without the immigrants or migrant populations or people who've lived there for years. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad that he's uh, uh, got his job back, but yeah, it's going to be a rough road ahead. But thank you so much, Cassie. Thank you for having me. We've been talking to Cassie Ordonio about how immigrants are coping with the wildfire recovery. Look for her stories on hawaiipublicradio.org. at Honolulu Civil Beat have a story about Red Hill and what may have led up to the spill that eventually contaminated drinking water for neighborhoods serving military families and local businesses. Reporter Christina Jedra joins us for our reality check. Hi, Christina. Hi, Catherine. It's good to be with you. Yes. And so you've been kind of going back uh, over some of the documents that were filed in court recently. That's right. So um, some text messages sent between high-level Navy officials have been submitted into the federal court record, and that gives us a bit of a behind-the-scenes look at what they were talking about before, during, and after the leaks at Red Hill that contaminated the drinking water around Pearl Harbor. So one exchange that really stood out to me was uh, with Captain Gordy Meyer. He was the, the commander at the time of the Naval Facilities Engineering Systems Command. It's mouthful. It's called NAVFAC. And after the May 2021 fuel leak at Red Hill, Meyer really underestimated how bad it was. Um, at the time, he was thinking it was maybe a 1,000 gallons of fuel that had been released. Later, they thought maybe closer to 1,600 um, it was actually about 20,000 gallons. And uh, there's a text message in the court record now that says that uh, Meyer was ready to stand in front of the camera if needed, but he was hoping that this was not a newsworthy event. Yeah, well, we saw how that changed pretty quick. Right. <laughs> yeah, and, and so, gosh, you know, these emails, I know they're, they're of concern because uh, uh, I understand that the military you know, probably had access to uh, other text messages on people's phones, but then those phones got scrubbed, right, to, to turn over to other people that were coming in. Right. So this has been a, a point of uh, contention in the lawsuit where these text messages came out. So uh, the Red Hill families that are suing the federal government wanted the communications from all of the Navy, Navy officials that were relevant um, for some of the people, including Meyer. Um, their phones were wiped because they were handed off to the officials that took over for their positions after they left. And so um, 
they were able to get some text messages from essentially group chats or threads that involved other people that still had those messages on their phones. So we're getting a glimpse at what they talked about, but some messages are just lost and will not be recovered. Yeah, I mean, that's unfortunate. You would have liked to have thought that, uh, you know, they would preserve evidence. Um, but, yeah, I'm sure the, the, the law firm that is suing the Navy uh, is a little dismayed about not having that available. They are, but even what from where we are able to see, um, there are some interesting takeaways. Um, one other thing that stood out to me was that after the May 2021 leak, which is not, it, it wasn't announced at the time that there was any threat to the water, but uh, internally, according to the text messages, they were concerned. Um, there's a reference to someone named Sherry, who I know is, uh, the environmental director for Navy Region Hawaii, um, she was concerned about elevated groundwater detection. Um, and apparently that individual and one other, they were sounding alarm bells is one of the text messages uh, statements um, about, you know, something in the water as of May and June 2021, which is months before this crisis came to light. So there were kind of internal worries before everything you know hit the fan several months later yeah it, it is troubling because you know you you want to know you know what did they know it when did they know it and did they not take the appropriate actions to prevent people from uh, uh, you know getting harmed by uh, fuel in their water right yeah I mean all of those questions are so important and what's interesting though is even after it was really apparent that people were sick um, Captain Meyer kind of downplayed the situation or at least wasn't recognizing the severity. Um, if you recall, the health department put it out a, an advisory telling people not to drink or use the tap water once it was clear that people were getting sick. Um, and he said in a text message that he hoped DOH would rescind that message and change their position um, regarding the drinking water in what he called unaffected areas. Now, it was really the whole distribution system that was impacted, so the idea of unaffected areas is sort of questionable, um, but he was hoping that DOH would be convinced by uh, the Navy's water testing results and take back what they what they told people. Yeah, it would be interesting because I know the Board of Water Supply it has... Uh is calling a news conference tomorrow just to talk about uh, Navy accountability for, for cleanup going forward. So we'll see what they have to say. Yes, it's an ongoing story. Yes, but thank you so much, Christina. Thank you. That was reporter Christina Jedrick with today's Reality Check. You can read her story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Anina Ho Community Park on Kauai. Members of the String Cheese Incident, Bill Nershi, Jason Hahn, and Kyle Hollingsworth, team up at the Porter Pavilion November 24th and 25th. Tickets at aninaho.org. It's been more than 40 days since Hamas kidnapped some 240 people in Israel. Their families are in despair. It's hard to be in the hands of people who are so cruel. People who have completely different morals than we do. Negotiations, political ramifications, and the plight of the hostages kidnapped by Hamas. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2. 
Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply Ohana with tips for Oahu households and businesses to help reduce water waste, such as fixing leaks. Learn more at boardofwatersupply.com. Arborist is trying to help keep a Pacific treasure on the World Heritage Site. Uh, Namadal is an archaeological stone complex in Pompeii dating back thousands of years. The Micronesian cultural site, which once served as a religious and political seat of power, is being threatened by invasive mangroves. Kailua Arborist Kevin Eckert had, has been tapped to help the local government save the site. And when we last talked to Eckert a few years ago, he was about to head over to Pompeii. But then COVID hit and the pandemic shutdown halted the work. It was resumed earlier this year. Eckert says the good news is that some of the arbor training in the region may uh, get some help, uh, get a boost from a $9 million grant from the federal government. Here's Eckert. We developed and implemented a program where we provided general education, foundational education on arboriculture standards and practices. And then we did actual hands-on training in tasks that they need to do, such as tree climbing, chainsaw safety, tree felling, plant selection, installation and establishment. And it was designed and focused on Nanmadal, which is a World Heritage Site, but it has been overrun with invasive vegetation. And actually, interestingly, some of the vegetation is mangrove and it's native, but it is taking over this very historic site, the former capital. So I understand that it was going to be struck from the World Heritage Site because it was degrading with the vegetation. So we came in, I looked, I did an assessment and management plan for that. And they asked me if I would do the training, and that's where we were talking at that point. We'd set it up, and it was ready to rock and roll, and COVID interrupted. So we went in, and we did that actual training to provide them the capacity, the resources, the knowledge, and the ability to go in and start managing that vegetation, and that's what we did. Well, so interestingly, you mentioned that that mangrove is native? Yes. When we talk about invasive plants, they are basically plants that are coming into a, an area, a site, and disrupting or destroying the resource. You can have native plants that are suited for a site, but if you're trying to manage a site in a different form, that may not be conducive. And in this particular case, Nanmadal was built on volcanic platforms that were ringed by basalt obelisks that they got from the north part of the island. There's a whole lot of archaeology going on with that that's fascinating. And they built it with canals. So mangrove is all about water and converting waterways to land. So as it was abandoned and it wasn't managed anymore, you know, hundreds of years ago, the mangrove came in and did what mangrove does, especially where it is native. It's very comfortable. So it was blocking off the waterways, the canals, and growing on the platforms, which were right at just above sea level and were coral and volcanic rock built, so very porous. So it was great habitat. Unfortunately, it was destroying that resource, the Nanbadal historical site. So that was the challenge. So one of the things we need to do is as environmentally correct, if you will, I don't want to know if correct's the right word, but as environmentally soundly as we can, is we need to selectively remove the mangrove from the canal. So using loppers and hand saws, because mangrove doesn't re-sprout, we would cut them and snip them and then dispose of that. 
and then teaching them how to identify the rhizomes that come in and how to manage that. And that's an ongoing process. But then we needed to teach them to cut the larger trees. And we have some trees that are 16, 18 inches in diameter on the platforms now and right down to one or two inches to cut those, fell those safely and correctly without damaging the resource and then dispose of the debris properly. So that starts off with chainsaw safety because when you get to larger trees, you've got to use chainsaws. So we did chainsaw safe operation and then we trained them to do tree felling, how to do directional felling using proper cuts and ropes and whatever you happen to need in different cases, how to, how to read the trees and then how to do that. Then I developed a process where I told them we don't want to take, uh, eventually we don't have, want to have no trees on the platforms, and they all certainly agreed with that. There's some cultural components to having trees, and I, I don't know. The archaeologists know better than I do, but I have to imagine they had trees on those platforms historically when Nanbadal was actually in operation. So my recommendation was we start pl- selectively planting trees that fit the culture and the message that they want to communicate on that particular site. So we needed to train them on how to select trees both the proper species and the proper location, and then how to select them from a nursery, a growing site, how to grow them properly, and then how to select them so you get a good, strong planting stock. It starts there, and then how to correctly install those trees and then establish them so you build a good, strong plant that will have a long, happy, safe life in front of it that will provide the amenity value that's desired with those particular trees. And then from there, we've got to say, okay, now we're talking about pruning. So we taught them proper pruning theory, techniques, and practices because you're going to need to maintain them whenever you have trees interacting with humans and our infrastructure, even on a historical site like Namadal, you've got to manage those. You've got to train them and uh, maintain them. So we taught them how to do that pruning. Um, at the same time, there was some very large breadfruit within some of the major platforms, and it was destroying. They were very large. Their tops were broken out from typhoons, and they were pushing the walls down. So we used those as an example and took them up and trained them, pruning as well as large tree removal, using those trees as an example. So we not only got training accomplished, we also accomplished the goal of, of clearing that site to some degree. Well, you have been sharing your expertise, you know, throughout the Pacific here, and you do work with a group that just recently was awarded some substantial money. Talk about that. Yeah, we're very excited. Smart Tree Pacific, of which I'm one of the founding members and the current president, was just awarded a large Inflation Reduction Act grant through the U.S. Forest Service to continue and, and actually expand the work that we've been doing for more than 20 years around the Pacific Islands, very comparable, but several magnitudes higher than we were doing in Ponapea, if you will, provide capacity building for baseline education, knowledge, and skill of arborists so that we can keep that going, sustain that, if you will, through those folks, train the trainer, if you will. I don't particularly care for that, but that's what we'll be doing to some extent, training the managers so that they can continue to train people. And then follow up with training the practitioners, the people who get their hands dirty that actually do the work. So we've developed a very comprehensive program, one that basically is what I've been doing for more than 25 years, and then added that element of practical training, bringing in myself and my team of workers, of tree, of arborist, professional 
working climbing arborists to do the training like we did in, in Ponape for Nan Nadal. But with the funding, we're able to expand that into seven of the Pacific Island territories. And in fact, Palau was not included. They got their own IRA grant, but they sent have asked us if we would take our program using their grant and do the training there for them. So we're, we're talking to them about that right now. But this is going to provide the resources to do the capacity building that we've always wanted to do. And that is, once we train them, we have the funding through this grant to be able to establish pilot projects where we can identify um, areas, uh, municipalities, agroforestry areas where they grow trees for food, for insecurity, food security and that. We can actually fund this where they can take these skills, practice them, develop them, enhance them, and expand upon them and sustain them and give them that seed money, if you will, to get that going under our professional supervision. So it's almost like, you know, doctors go through residency and others go through internships. So we'll be able to, we'll have the resources to be able to do that. And we're excited because we feel that this is going to establish a baseline that is sustainable over a period of five years. The funding is for five years. Well, that's terrific. I mean, as we sit down to count our blessings over this holiday season, I mean, wow, this was not just an early Christmas present, but boy, you're teaching them how to fish, right? Not just giving them a fish. Exactly. That's exactly what we're doing. I mean, how to do it right, how to enhance and expand their abilities. And especially nowadays with the global warming and the sea level rise and food security, what we're seeing around the islands, this is going to give us the opportunity to not only show them and teach them but to give them further resources so that they can practice it, pilot projects out there that will be proof of concept, where they can actually see it work and become a part of it, internalize it. And later this month, Hawaii is going to be hosting a big forestry conference. Yeah, the Pacific Island Forestry Council, which meets, I think it's every other year. I should know this. I've been working with them for so long. (laughs) They meet periodically on a regular cycle, if you will, around the Pacific Islands. And periodically, they'll be back in Hawaii, and they are again back in Hawaii. They'll be in Hilo at the U.S. Forest Service headquarters there. And when they've done that in the past, and when they've done it out and about, they've asked me to do a training, a week-long training session for our Boer cultural skills for representatives from around the islands. And we are doing that again the last week in November. Right. So it really is just amazing. I guess you just throw a stone in the water and you watch it ripple. Exactly. Yep. Although this time, I think with the resources we have, it'll be waves. (laughs) There you go. All right. Well, Kevin Eckert, thank you so much for your time. Do be careful out there as you climb those trees with your chainsaw. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. uh, And we're going to show them how to do that, too. (laughs) Okay. All right. And then we'll, uh, we'll catch up with you on your next project. I look forward to it. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you again. And that was Kevin Eckert with Global Arborist and co-founder of Smart Trees Pacific, which just recently was awarded nine, a $9 million federal grant. Eckert will take part in a conference with the Pacific Island Forestry Council on the Big Island next month.
Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. Aloha, I'm John Zach. Join me on Saturday, November 25th at 4 p.m. on HPR One for a special program called Hawaii's Military Voices. It's a collaboration between StoryCorps and Hawaii Public Radio, and it features compelling stories from Hawaii residents about their experiences in and with the military. This special project is sponsored by Hawaii Pacific University. Our veterans have a lot to say, and now we get the chance to listen. Support for the conversation comes from Skog Rasmussen, LLC, designing solutions for community engagement, project strategy, government relations, and grants services. Learn more at skograsmussen.com. Popular Aloha Wear brand Iolani Sportswear returns this month with a new children's line called Alika Leo Park. Iolani was started by the Kawakami family in 1953, but closed its doors in July of 2021, right in the middle of the pandemic. Alex Kawakami is the grandson of the company's founders. He and his wife, Sarah, have been running the family business for the last few years and are the founders of Alika Leo Park line. The Conversations of Russell Subiano was curious about why Iolani decided to come out of its self-described hibernation. He sat down with the Kawakamis in our studio this morning. Alex and I were a part of Iolani Sportswear for the last 17 years before we took a break. And it was really fun to be a part of a family company. We were looking forward to what we were going to be able to evolve Iolani into like this era. Mm-hmm. And as a mom, I knew I always wanted to like create kids clothing we tried to dabble in it with iolani but iolani was known for aloha shirts and muumuu and you know adult styles that when in that period of time where it was the two years between us taking a break alex and i we we collaborated and we brainstormed on what we could do to continue the legacy of iolani and it just so happened to collide with our lifestyle as parents and we were able to bring the artwork from Iolani Sportswear to clothing for kids today which was really a cool collaboration that we were able to do. When we look back at the state of the Hawaiian wear market before the pandemic we did see more newer brands like Manaola and others start to gain market share especially amongst Hawaiians and locals did that shift impact your business at all? I, I didn't think so because, you know, like Manaola and Sig Zane, those companies that were coming up and becoming very popular were very focused on the cultural aspect, which was great because it's taking a lot of the old stories and putting them into art. And for us, we had a different history and, and we were just trying to do what we did as well. But the big thing that made us pause was that not only was it COVID, but a big customer of ours was the Japanese visitors. Mm-hmm. And so when they stopped, we tried to adjust by going online and catering to a different customer. But it seemed like the Japanese visitor was such a huge part of what we did. And we traveled to Japan all the time for music and hula that it just felt like it was the right time to take that pause. Yeah. And it's really cool to see how the Aloha Shared has evolved too. And just in the last like 
five years, not even the last 20 years. But I really like what, you know, Manaola and Sig Zane and even like, you know, the, the old school, like Rans and Tories, they're really coming up with nice stuff too. Yeah. Hopefully we can get back into it sometime. That's my dream. What we found too while we were going through the process was we have 70 years worth of artwork, you know, from the 50s all the way through now. And there's some stuff that I hadn't, I've never seen. Even my dad has never seen before. Some that Iolani Sportswear never even never used. Never used. Oh, yeah. Wow. We just had collected 70 wow. years worth of artwork. Yeah. And, you know, each year they would release new designs, new prints. But there was a lot that, you know, oh, we'll save this one. Oh, we'll save yeah. this one. <laughs> and then it got lost somewhere, <laughs> somewhere <laughs> in the 70 years. And so that would be my dream is to like bring back the Iolani Aloha shirt using these, you know, the prints, kind of like what we're doing now, but in Aloha shirts and other Hawaiian wear too. What are some of the, the pros and cons of launching a, a kid's line as opposed to coming back with what Yolani has traditionally been? You know, this was definitely a big leap for Alex and I, but it fit our lifestyle right now. We're mom and dad right now to two boys, two young boys. We're in the thick of parenthood. We wanted to design clothing that really represented kids today and what we've experienced with our boys and it was definitely influenced by their lively life, you know, of adventure and nonstop movement and outside play. So we wanted to create something that represented just kids today. And for me, it w- I was so tired of buying such expensive clothing that outgrew my boys. So we knew that with Alikaleo Park, we wanted to create an oversized fit for kids. and and we wanted it to be unisex, and we wanted it to have sun protection. So these are all things that we experienced as parents that we wanted to make sure that our brand had. And you brought some samples with you. Can you describe to our listeners what they look like and kind of describe maybe the story behind that particular design? All of our prints, there's little elements that are taken from Iolani Sportswear. So It was really fun to go through 70 years worth of artwork and just pick and choose little elements and add them into something more colorful and creative and bold for kids. This is our Pineapple Day collection. And we paired the pineapples that were from a vintage artwork with a checkered young fun design that is bright yellow, green. It is an oversized fit, just a classic everyday t-shirt that is really comfortable so all of our fabric is a cotton spandex for our shirts so if you feel it you you'll feel the difference my kids love it they're like oh "Oh, this feels so comfortable i want to make adult versions of all of these (laughs) right (laughs) yeah i'm serious yeah this is smooth and cool yep especially in you know the typically kind of hot and sweaty weather that we usually get they put it on and they're like "Ooh, it feels so good on my skin that they look forward Uh to wearing it because usually you know it's like something just I don't know, not not as soft. Right, right. I think a lot of the hard cotton that a lot of children's clothing are are made from, a little bit rough, a little bit scratchy. Right. Uh, but this is very soft and, and very cool feeling, cool yep. to the touch, yeah. And then these are our shorts. So we wanted to create a unisex brand that the shorts could go for boys and girls. You can roll it up. We designed it with pockets because, you know, kids, they collect mm-hmm. things constantly in their pockets for their their snacks or for even their rocks that they pick up throughout the day. We did a shorts and we did a long pant. This one is one of my favorites because we took this tiki from an embroidery from Iolani Sportswear Aloha shirt that was a really nice detail on the Aloha shirt. 
and it just caught my eye. It just, it spoke to me. So we took that embroidery and made it an all-over print for kids. Well, and that, that tiki also is kind of like what we're talking about with all the artwork we have is we found a book that had all of these embroideries that we used to have an in-house artist. His name was Jackson. And he, he did a lot of the iconic Iolani artwork from back in the day. And we had this book full of embroideries that he designed that we just opened and had pages full of stuff that I'd never seen before. And that one is one of the, the more used ones that we, we have done in the past. But there's all these different ones that are really cool. That he created like, it for Iolani. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That we're like, where, did, where was this? Uh-huh. <laughs> it was just <laughs> hidden in this book for years. And when, when we think about just the garment industry as a whole, especially in this post-pandemic economy, what kind of challenges have you had to overcome with like supply chain delays and things like that? Is that still an issue? It's not as much of an issue as it was like, you know, two years ago when it was hard to get everything. The hardest part for us, and I think Sarah can speak to it too, is, you know, you're asking what the pros and the cons of creating a new line was that it was literally from scratch. And so, now where do we start? You know, what's what's the sizes? What's the measurements? What, do we need a drawstring on the shorts? Does it need pockets? What kind of fabric? And that part was, I think, the hardest because when we would be designing it, we'd figure out, well, we forgot to do this or we didn't add this to it. And so that was more than like a supply chain or getting it made and having the product in hand. It was just basically matching the colors and, you know, the the basic stuff that we just had to start from scratch, which was hard. But the kids collection, I mean, it started on a whole different, you know, spectrum where we wanted to create something that was really colorful and represented kids. That was something that kids could feel and be proud of what they're wearing and feel good in it. It represents fun to us. Yeah. And another fun thing is the name, right? Tell us the story behind the name. Well, you know what's so funny is my (laughs) husband, he combined both of our boys' names. So our oldest son, his name is Alika, and our second son is Kaleo. And he combined the boys' names on our Netflix username. (laughs) And I guess it was up for like a month, and I never noticed it. And one day I looked at it and I go, oh my gosh, the, the names, they work together. And he was like, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, I, and I just thought that was brilliant. I was like, wow. And this was during the pandemic time. So we were forced to stay home, you know, so we created a backyard that became like our sanctuary because our kids could only stay at home. We had to get outside for exercise and to play. So we got the kids a playground set and we named it Alikaleo Park. And it just became like this place where we'd be like, okay, let's all go out to Alikaleo Park. Like, let's let's go play. Let's go stretch. And it just kind of became something that was like in it our was the, everyday. It was the theme because it, the idea started out with the lifestyle of a kid in Hawaii. So just going outside, being able to run around in the grass. That's what our first theme when we started moving forward with this. And so that was perfect because that's what we did with our kids. Just, you know, like when we were all young, it's like go outside, run around, right. you know, go find a ball and throw it with your friend. That's what we want to get back to is going back outside again and having fun. And that's what the pandemic really encouraged us to do because mm-hmm. usually, you know, you, you're, you're a busy lifestyle, you're at activities, you're at school, you're, and then you come home and kids have iPads, kids have, you know, TV. And this was a way where we were inspired by our life during the pandemic to get our kids outside and to encourage families to go outside and just be together. Where can our listeners find more information about this new line? Where can they buy it? 
We are going to be exclusively online right now. So our website is called alikaleopark.com. And yeah, they can purchase everything online. We have a pre-sale going on right now. We'll be shipping out all next week and hopefully, you know, up until Christmas for Christmas gifts. And then our Instagram and Facebook at Alikaleo Park is what we want people to see. Please visit us at alikaleopark.com. Yeah. Sarah, Alex, thanks so much for joining me in the studio this morning. Thanks, Russ. Appreciate it. That was Alex and Sarah Kawakami, the founders of Alikaleo Park, a children's clothing line from the classic Iolani Sportswear Company. They were talking with HPR's Russell Subiono, and we'll have a link to check out the clothing line on the conversation page of our website later today. That is it for us today. Tomorrow, we'll hear about resources for those whose loved ones are struggling with Alzheimer's. We do welcome feedback. Call or talk back line, 808-792-8217. You can find the conversation on our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.